0: Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And we have the pleasure of welcoming a real expert on issues of chronic pain, Vidyamala Birch. Vidyamala is the co-founder of Breathworks, which offers mindfulness-based approaches to living well with chronic pain, illness, or stress. The organization grew out of her own experience with chronic pain as a partial paraplegic and adapts principles from mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Breathworks now has teachers in over 25 countries and has an ever-deepening body of evidence-based research showing the efficacy of its programs. So Vijimala, thank you for being here today. How are you doing? It's my absolute pleasure to be here, and I'm doing really well. Well, great. It's awesome to hear that. Yeah, thanks for doing this with us today. Your personal story and background and just history with uh, discomfort and chronic pain is a big part of the story inside of the work that you do. So I was wondering just to kind of ground this episode for the people listening to it and to offer a little background, if you would mind talking a little about that.
1: Yes, of course. So I'm 59 now and I injured my spine when I was 16. So that is a very long time ago. And I had major surgery when I was 17, complications. And really that's when I started a life living with chronic pain and disability. And for the first 10 years, I, I was just in denial. I pretended it wasn't happening. I didn't deal with it at all well. And then after about 10 years, I reached a state of collapse. Uh, my back got much, much worse. I ended up in hospital. And I had some experiences during that time. This was when I was 25 that were really very significant and changed my life. One of them was when the hospital chaplain came to see me. And he did a very brief little meditation with me. It was a little visualization exercise. It got me to remember a time and a place when I'd been happy. And I took my mind back to the Southern Alps of New Zealand, where I'd done climbing and lots of tramping as a very, very fit teenager before I injured my spine. And I'd been ecstatically happy during those times. Very, very beautiful places. And I was fit and healthy and well and very happy. So I took my mind back there I think it was probably only like 10 minutes or something, this little meditation practice. And then, you know, there I was, same girl, same hospital bed, same body, but I felt different. And I felt different because of what I'd done with my, with my mind, what, where I placed my awareness. And that blew my mind, realizing that I could change my subjective experience by what I'd done with my mind and where I placed my attention. So that awoken me a real hunger to investigate my mind. You know, what is this this resource that I have within me that I can maybe train in some kind of way? I didn't know how to do it at that point, of course. Maybe train, maybe investigate, maybe develop that would help me manage my subjective experience of my pain. So that was one very significant uh, experience then. And when I came out of the hospital, I had a very good social worker and I said to her, I really want to learn to meditate. Now, nobody meditated then. I didn't know a single soul who meditated. It was, it was not in the common sort of way of things, the way it is these days. So she got me some books and some tapes out of the local library. And really, that was the beginning of my journey. And I've been meditating more or less daily ever since then with this quest of how can I train my mind? How can I train my heart? In order to help me live in this body that I have I can't change my body um, this body that's damaged this body that's painful how can I learn to live in it with more grace with more ease with more happiness and joy
2: wow that's very very touching I can see your face now people who are listening can 't see your face and I've been struck now as many times I know you reasonably well Vimala's you know for the record here and I don't see pain in your face. I know you're experiencing it. I know you've dealt with tremendous pain far beyond anything I've ever dealt with in my entire life. And yet I don't see the ravages of it in your face. Um, And it reminds me, I guess, of uh, this teaching from the Buddha that I've thought about from time to time about how people who remain in the present have a serene complexion. And there are ways in which your own practice, of course, helps you remain in the present. So... With that as maybe a jumping off point, I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about Breathworks and what you've developed there, including the ways in which Breathworks is an adaptation of mindfulness, maybe goes beyond mindfulness in some ways, might be similar to, but in other ways differentiated from some of the common things people have encountered when they think of mindfulness.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Rick. And just before I jump into that, just to refer back to this this thing of being in the present, you know, I think I think my face has worn my pain in the past. And it's interesting how that's lessened over time. As my practice has deepened, I think it shows less and less, which is interesting. But the other thing that happened in the hospital was that I had a, a direct experience that I, I only experience my pain in the present moment. That past moments of pain are a memory and future moments of pain are an idea. And that I I actually only experience pain one moment at a time. And again, that was huge for me as a 25-year-old girl who was absolutely tormented by the situation that I was in. So this idea of how can I learn to be fully present in my life? That's been my quest ever since then. Because I know, viscerally, I really deeply know that the present moment is all that there really is. Of course, it's in a context of past and future. It's not a bubble. But the only moment or, or the only time that we experience our lives directly is now. Everything else is just mental fabrication. So that was another thing that I took from being in hospital and uh, I've been trying to work that out ever since, this ongoing quest to be fully present. So going on to breath works. Yeah, so that was 85 when I had my very first taste of meditation. Got very hungry for it. Very, very hungry. And ended up moving to the UK from New Zealand to live in a Buddhist retreat center for five years. Because I wanted, to, I wanted to immerse myself very intensively in this mind training, in this heart training, in this, this quest to be present. And that was a really great thing to do. It was very tough. I had a lot of pain. I didn't know how to deal with it very well. I was quite blocked. <laughs> I, kind of, I wasn't very good at being honest with myself about what I was feeling, let alone other people. But nonetheless, it was very, very transformative those years. Had another big crisis with my back. It got a lot worse. And I started to use a wheelchair, bowel and, paralyzed, bowel and bladder paralyzed. Another big crisis. And then I really had to look very deep within. I've been meditating for 10 years. How have I ended up back in another great big crisis? What is going on? And there were two big discoveries that I made then. One is that, to some extent anyway, I've been meditating up to this point in order to escape. And I think that's a common mistake. You know, we meditate to try to get away from ourselves to something better rather than to land fully in our own lives. So I thought, okay, I really need to address that. I need to learn how to meditate. Anyway, start again. I need to learn how to turn towards my experience rather than away from it. That was one thing. And the other really big thing that I realized is how do I take my practice off the cushion and into my daily life? That yeah, I meditated maybe an hour a day, but then, and maybe I was asleep for seven hours, but then the other 15 hours or whatever, I was just like a mad person. You know, really pushy, really driven, not looking after my body, a bit like a hamster in a wheel, I would say. It was all part of the avoidance that I was, I was trapped in. So, I thought, okay, there's two things I really need to come to grips with here. I need to change the way I meditate. So, I use my meditation to come more towards whatever's going on, including the pain. And I really need to figure out how to carry my mindfulness and my awareness throughout my daily life. And that's where I came across this idea of pacing from cognitive behavioral therapy that's used quite widely in pain management and also with people with chronic fatigue. Because it's quite common when people have got pain or fatigue that. That we get caught up in what's called boom and bust cycle. So when you feel good, you totally go for it, and then you crash, and then you crawl out of bed, and you've got everything's piled up because you've had a crash. So then you overdo it even more to try to make up the lost time, and then you have a bigger crash. Yeah. And so CBT's been very good for this, and developed lots of methods of of helping people pace their activities. So I, I looked into all that and started to use a timer. So now if I'm working at the computer, the timer will go off after 23 minutes, I'll have a stretch, I'll stand up, maybe lie down for a little bit, go back to work. And actually that that massively changed my life, the pacing module.
2: I've seen you do that, by the way, as a speaker in a big conference, 100 people in the room. And it's really quite magical, actually, for everyone else that there you are and you break the standard script of what a presenter does with a PowerPoint presentation and whatnot. And, and right there at 23 minutes or so, you will stand up, you will stretch, people in the room will do it too. And it helps everyone to do it themselves. And it's a teaching to watch you do it. That's interesting. That Yeah, I, I remember that conference where I did, did it with you there. And
1: you know, there's no way I could have done that 20 years ago. I wouldn't have been confident enough. So that's another thing that mindfulness builds is confidence to be yourself. And now I do it. And I, and I partly do it now because I'm making a point, obviously. I, I mean, I do it for myself. But I see all these other people in the audience slumped in their chairs, uncomfortable. And I think, for God's sake, everybody just get up and then have a stretch. <laughs> and it does sort of, it, it brings a lightness of the energy. So anyway, I was doing all these things. And then I came across the work of Jon Kabat-Zinn, which I found very powerful indeed. And then I, this was around the late 90s. I thought, well, maybe I've developed something that could be helpful to other people by now. I've been meditating for 15 years by this point, And I thought maybe it would, it would be good to see, have I got something to offer others? And also I thought, God, I just need to get out more you know, I've been more or less housebound for two or three years at this point after this next big crisis. I just thought the next step in my healing will be to do something for other people. Because one can get very sort of bound up with with self when you're dealing with a chronic health condition. Every day is just a kind of struggle to get through the day. And I thought, no, I really want to offer this to other people and see what what happens. You know, it breaks my heart that there's millions of people in the world living with pain or difficulty who've got loads of extra suffering that they don't need to have if they just learnt these simple tools of how to work with the mind and work with the body. And yeah, now we've got something like 500 teachers in 35 countries. So it's expanded a lot and I've written my books and so on. And uh, yeah, it's very, very satisfying. Hmm. Yeah, that's lovely.
0: So as you said, there are a lot of people who deal with chronic pain conditions. There are probably people listening to the podcast right now who deal with some kind of a condition. So outside of pacing, which you've mentioned at this moment, that idea of both regulating your own impulses to kind of overcompensate for a period of time where you're laid up with a chronic condition and also taking care of your own body with your you know the 23-minute timer, making sure that you're moving and stretching. What are some of the other things as basic techniques, basic practices that Breathworks teaches or that you teach that could really help somebody who might be experiencing some of those conditions?
1: Yeah, great. So we've got six different meditation practices that we do over the eight-week program. I won't go into all the details, but they're all based on mindfulness and loving kindness. So half the practices are helping people establish a foundation of awareness. So there's a body scan, there's breathing meditations. And then the other half of the practice are helping people open their hearts to themselves so they can be tender and kind towards their own suffering. Because of course, most of us, we're not, are we? You know, we might be loving and kind towards a loved one who's injured or suffering, but we're often really hard on ourselves. So there's self-care, if you like, self-compassion, but also very importantly, we've got a connection practice, which is all about cultivating empathy with others. Because mindfulness sometimes can seem it's just a kind of self-project. You know, how can I learn to manage my pain better so I have a better life? That will be perfectly reasonable thing to to do, I guess, but that would never be enough for me. It's like, how can I learn to really sort of understand the experience of being human really, really deeply so I can take my place in humanity, so I can be one of 7 billion people on the planet and I can have a default setting of empathy rather than isolation. But that's another very important part of our programme because when people are living with chronic health problems, we often do feel very, very isolated. Maybe our social networks fail. Maybe our relationships fail. But with using awareness, using mindfulness, using the imagination, we can cultivate the sense of connectedness. And that's naturally very healing.
0: So when you say using mindfulness, using the imagination, of course, you know, not need to walk somebody right now through a six-week program or whatever it might be. What are some of the ways in which mindfulness can be used to address those kind of chronic pain issues that you're talking about? Because I think that in kind of a casual reading of the word mindfulness, you know, you're dropping more into your experience of whatever it might be. And if I have an experience of chronic pain, you know, why would I want to drop into that? Because it feels like that would be rather unpleasant for me. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. You know, is it just
1: a training in masochism? (laughs) Why would you do that? (laughs) And, uh, And it's interesting when I talk about my very first meditation experience in the hospital, that was a visualization where I went somewhere else.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So you might think, well, surely that's a better thing to do than mindfulness. Now, the reason why I didn't really follow the visualization route, but I followed more the mindfulness route, the truth of the matter is what is happening is what's happening. And if I mentally want it to be different, or I want to go somewhere else or I want to escape it. That doesn't take away the fact that what I'm experiencing right now is what I'm experiencing right now. And it's unpleasant. So a more courageous and a more effective method is to learn to turn towards what is actually happening and transform the response.
2: How does that not make it worse? So let's say right now, as I sit here, my back on the zero to 10 pain scale is a 0.5, right? It's not even a one, but it's real. And by the way, if we either of us need to stand up and take a break at that 23 minute mark, let's be sure to do that here why doesn't it make it worse to bring your full attention into the heat of the fire right where it hurts? Why doesn't that make it worse?
1: Okay, so that's a
2: really great question because, of course, that's
1: what anyone would think. So let's do a little exercise together, okay? All right. So make a fist with one hand. Okay. And what's happened to your breathing?
2: Ah, it's slowed down, it stopped, it froze. It stopped. It froze. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now direct your breathing into the fist.
2: What do you mean by that? I'm breathing in my ma- my nose, my lungs. What do you mean?
1: Of course, yeah. But just imagine that uh, this is an imagination, uh, imaginative thing. Imagine your breathing is flowing down your arm into the fist. And what does your fist want to do?
2: Open and open. relax. Wants to open and relax. Okay. You're a magician. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great little exercise, yeah. Okay, so the fist is a metaphor here for pain, yeah? So I've got pain in my back and it's like I've got a fist in my back, yeah? And I've not only got the fist in my back, but I've got breath holding. I've got a fist, so that let's just imagine the fist is pain. And I've got breath holding and fist plus breath holding equals more pain because you've got this bound contracted state. And if you freeze your breath, your body gets tense and that will make your pain worse. And everything that we do at Breathworks about coming into the body and coming into direct experience, it's all designed to release that contracted state. So if you like, it's all designed to soften the fist. And that means with practice, when you come into the body, the pain eases. Rather than the pain getting worse, the pain eases. In a way, you could say, to use the metaphor of the fire, you're coming into the body and you're putting the fire out. Because the fire will be fed by this all this breath holding, all the contraction, all the tension, the secondary tension that we get when we're
2: fighting our pain. Mm. i want to push on this just a smidge here. Okay, so to me, part of what you're saying is there's no escape. And the effort to escape adds to the pain of whatever you're trying to escape. Exactly. There, exactly. there might be a momentary break, if you will. But every time you go into fantasy to get away from your direct experience, you start accumulating a cost. You are. You're accumulating all this kind of secondary tension and secondary contraction. Yeah. yeah. And there, you may know the fancy term for it, allostatic load. Uh, it's a made-up term, but it, it means the gradual accumulation of stress load. So you're paying a price. There's no way around it. Yeah. So I, I get that part, that the, the strategy of escape from pain is worse than useless. Okay, get that part. But I think there's another part here that's really, gosh, for lack of a better word, magical, that somehow when we fully come in to the experience itself, and you speak about this more eloquently than I can, so I'm kind of handing it off to you here in a moment. What is it about the coming into the experience itself utterly fully, with no defense against it, utterly surrendered to it, that actually starts to sort of break up the experience of the pain and it starts shifting. And even though it continues to be unpleasant, it doesn't bother you that it's unpleasant. And you start seeing its emptiness, to use that language. It's fizzing in substantial foamy qualities somehow in a way that can even take you into something quite extraordinary that I know you've experienced. So can you say more about that second part? Good, that's really great. Thank you. It does feel a little bit magical, using that word
1: loosely, because of course it isn't magical, but it, it ha- has a remarkable quality. That's surprising. It's very surprising. So here you are, you got pain, you think, I hate my pain. You think, what can I do to avoid my pain, get away from my pain? And the pain feels very, very solid, or it feels the enemy, or you hate it. But it can feel this kind of concrete, stuck permanence to it, yeah? But what we do, if we cultivate the curiosity, the courage to turn towards the direct experience, you go inside it with the breathing. And as we just did with the first thing, if you go inside with the breathing, everything starts to soften. So you're not on the fire. You're actually in something much more gentle. And you examine your direct experience with your awareness and you realize there is no thing called pain. There is no thing called pain. There's a flow of unpleasant sensations. Full stop. That's all there is, a flow of unpleasant sensations. And you realize when you go right inside it that no two moments of pain are identical. And even something that you've got an idea is painful, say like tingling. You know, this is a really painful sensation of tingling. You go right inside it, you investigate, and you think, oh, actually, it's a little bit pleasant. So even the label of unpleasant and pleasant starts to kind of become very relative, sort of imposed by ideas rather than the direct experience. And it's very, very beautiful. And this breathing is absolutely central. So one of the things I'm teaching more and more is being aware of three diaphragms of breathing. So you've got your main diaphragm, you've got a diaphragm at the back of the mouth, top of the throat, And you've got a pelvic diaphragm in the pelvic floor. And you want to get all these three areas soft, receptive to the flow of breath and the body. I use imagery, like these three areas are like swinging doors, just blowing in the breeze of the breath. So everything starts to become softer, more flowing. And ultimately what can happen is, you know, sometimes in spiritual traditions like like awareness, reality, it's described as the blue sky. Like consciousness itself is like the blue sky, and all the thoughts are like clouds kind of flowing across the sky and so on. And when I go really, really inside my pain, really, really inside my body, it's like I almost go inside the cells, and there I find the blue sky. So the blue sky isn't above us. You know, I think that's where the, the metaphor of the blue sky sort of breaks down because people think it's, you know, up there. But you realize that that spacious, vast, luminous consciousness, if you like, whatever you want to call it, you go so far inside the body that you sort of come out into the blue sky by going way, way, way inside. You go inside pain. Ah, oh, there's expansiveness. There's vastness. You go inside sensation. You go inside breath. There it is. And you rest there. And that's such a radically different experience from being this tight little bound contracted person who, who hates your pain and just wants to get away. So, you know, the reward of turning the whole one's whole reaction to pain on its head and turning towards it rather than away from it, the reward is this kind of magnificent state of, of sort of openness and softness and rest and ease even though you've still got unpleasant sensations arising and passing. And they're just like waves on the ocean. They're not a thing. I think that that's the main thing that you realize, oh, pain is not a thing at all. It's a label for sensations that you've kind of concretized around and contracted against and turned it into an object and then got into a great big battle with. It, it's, it's crazy what we do. It's like you sort of make something up and you fix it, you react to it. Tighten your breath, contract, try to avoid, and you just got a whole massive extra suffering.
0: We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein and particularly more healthy protein into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text "Being Well" to 64000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text being well to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value, and making it a priority in our lives, is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy— and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com/slash help, being well. Yeah, no, it's the whole conversation that we've certainly had on this podcast in the past with the first dart and the second dart. You can have the reality yeah. of your yeah. own experience, but it's about so much of life is about how do you react to the reality of your experience. So, I don't know if that was an intentional allusion to Suzuki Roshi there or not with the the consciousness as a swinging door that the breath flows through, which I yeah. think is a quote from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. But I think that that was uh, such a lovely way to frame it and such a lovely way to hold it in, in terms of also kind of dropping into the spaciousness of that experience and how we can have a, a very narrow interpretation of our own kind of conscious experience, particularly in a moment of discomfort. Where everything really narrows in, and you become incredibly acutely aware of one sensation. And what you're really speaking to here with this breath practice, to a certain extent, is a kind of dropping into wholeness, a, a dropping into that sense of expansion, definitely. which I was articulated in a really lovely way.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, that's definitely what's what's happening. And I just like to say, for the uh, to make it very clear, you know, the sensations are still unpleasant. I think that's an important point to make. It's not like this yeah. is some kind of magical thinking and it's all just all lovely and blissful. It might be, but you know, the sensations are still unpleasant, but they're, you're not adding anything, which is like the teaching of the two darts, which is absolutely central to our whole program. You know, how do you help people accept, we call it primary and secondary suffering, you know, accept the primary suffering and prevent the arising, if you like, of all the secondary stuff. And the way I describe this is that the secondary suffering or the second arrow is is caused by resistance. It's the not wanting mind, you know, I don't want this. You have that playing out mentally, emotionally, physically as all kinds of contracted secondary tension. Yeah, so this kind of soft breath is a way of just keeping on coming back to the primary. And uh, another thing, and and Rick will enjoy this, is uh, on our program, we've also got a a lot of emphasis on becoming more sensitive and appreciative of pleasant sensation. It's not all about just you know, unwinding the reactivity, reactivity to the unpleasant. That's obviously really important. You do that, you soften, 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 rising and passing, sort of dropping into this more spacious awareness. And then we've got a whole week on our program, which we call the treasure of pleasure, which is, well, what pleasant sensations are in my body right now? And how can I learn to really attend to those?
2: I want to build on that Vidyamala in a way that'll give you a chance to talk about other resources that I'm sure you bring to bear in your own life and teach other people to do, such as the capacity to relax the body, even as we are aware of the body, for example, or the resource of having self-compassion or a sense of common humanity in our own suffering, things of that sort. And one of the things that has struck me is the ways in which people can grow through the confrontation with pain. And the fundamental matter for me goes way beyond noticing what's pleasant and beautiful and sweet and delightful in the world amidst all the the pain and sorrow and terrible things. I mean, that's really important. But the primary focus for me really is about learning. It's really about growing, Uh, growing in the capacity to be with the pain without being swallowed up by it, growing the capacity to identify increasingly with the sky of mind rather than the storm clouds passing through it. These are things that we grow and develop over time. And I just wondered if you could talk more about the additional resources, let's say distinct from mindfulness itself in the bare sounds that you help people develop and you've seen that are important. And maybe also you could speak to the general process of growing and developing through this confrontation with our own suffering.
1: Well, one of the things which I've definitely experienced massively in my own life is an increase in confidence. We build resilience, maybe that's even a better word. So I don't really have fear anymore of, oh my God, what's it going to be like when I'm old and my body's falling to bits? I think well I know that you know my body's been falling to bits for 40 years and I know that I can meet that with grace and courage yeah and I think very often we're frightened of what we don't know and when people are just learning to turn towards the difficulties that arise in life with this kind of realism and awareness then we will grow because what's happening is we're learning to be with life as it is, rather than some fantasy life that we'd rather have. And I think as soon as you keep going to fantasy and I wish things were different, that's not going to build confidence. But if you're able to bear, it's quite interesting actually in the Buddhist tradition in one of the texts that the Buddha says, bear it, monks, <laughs> bear it. Which I often think about, I think oh, that's, that sounds a bit harsh, but actually learning to bear, the human condition and to be confident in the face of the human condition as it is really will build confidence. So everything we do, I think, is helping that central act of learning to... Well, another way of talking about it is we're aligning ourselves with the truth. You know, you're aligning yourselves with the nature of things rather than continue trying to dislodge yourself through fantasy to some other fabricated reality. But you're aligning yourself with the truth all the time. And that will you, you will grow if you do that. And everything we do is helping that. So on our program, we've got a, a sort of adapted approach to mindful movement. And a lot of mindfulness programs, it's yoga, it can be quite full on. Well, we might have someone in the class with secondary bone cancer in their spine. And we might have someone else with sort of non-specific back pain who really could do with moving. So we, we had to play around with this for years trying to work out what to do. And what we've arrived at is more of a kind of moving meditation. so very, very gentle movement, which is where you're learning to bring awareness into the body as it moves. And then you can take that training into all the movements of daily life, you know, lifting up a a mug, opening a door. And it's all about not contracting the breath. Because what most people do is we rip the breath and then we move. So it's all that, that deep training is in the mindful movement. And something else, I mean, this is a little bit hot off the press, really sort of latest thinking that obviously as a mindfulness program everything we do is based on mindfulness but I'm increasingly thinking that you know mindfulness on its own isn't really enough for growth and transformation and that mindfulness I'm increasingly seeing as a kind of foundational quality that builds confidence and Build this idea of choice and agency, so we're not just being thrown around by our habitual reactions. And then we need to take that into different arenas. So diet, for example, eating well. And I'm not particularly advocating any particular diet, but you know, eat three meals a day, get your portions of fruit and vegetables. We can be as mindful as we like, as we like but if we've got really poor diet, really poor eating habits, that's not going to lead to well-being. Routine, I think that's really important you know, trying to get seven or eight hours sleep a night. You know, again, you can meditate. You might have an effective practice, but, but if you're going to sleep at two in the morning and you're wired because you've been online for hours, that's not really going to help your mind. So I'm, I'm increasingly sort of placing mindfulness as, a, as the underpinning of the foundational quality of life. But then we also need to work quite explicitly and carefully on diet, exercise, sleep. Those are the three areas. There's a lot of evidence now about nature. You know, the, the the benefits of going out into nature or even just going outside your front door and looking at a weed in the crack in the pavement. You know, these things can have an effect.
0: I have to imagine that in the last, whatever it is, 30, 40 years, you've had some pretty bad days. You've had some bad pain days. You've had some days where it really felt like these things were insurmountable, where maybe some of the more simple practices were just not getting it done for whatever reason. So... For somebody who is going through those or for yourself, kind of speaking to yourself in the past, what were some of the things that really made a difference during those days? Gosh,
1: I think when I stopped judging myself, maybe,
0: Mm.
1: for many, many years, many, many years living with this body, I felt a failure because I think I thought I should be able to somehow you know, make it all go away, make myself better. This is really important to say this, actually, because I think I I would have looked at someone like me and felt a failure Mm. and thought, oh, you know, know, she's managed her pain, I haven't, I'm useless, she's amazing. I would have had that kind of thing playing out. So it's good to say this, actually, in this podcast.
2: Yeah.
1: I would have compared myself with me (laughs) and felt bad. Felt useless, yeah. But when I learned to stop doing that and to stop, stop layering, feeling useless, a failure, because I, because I was struggling and I just accepted this is how it is today, that made it easier. And kindness, you know, kindness to myself, but also the kindness of others. The kindness of others has been, I can't express the gratitude for the kindness of others. I'm locked in this little bubble of hell and someone you know it doesn't matter who it is sometimes in hospital very often in hospital actually it's been the cleaning lady or the someone that brings the person that brings the breakfast it's not been the medical teams it's been these other people that come and they they're kind and they connect and i think because i've received that that's why kindness is such an important quality for me in my life. You know, if there's, if there's one thing I want to be in this world, it's kind. Because I know the power of kindness. It's very simple, isn't it? You know, reaching out to another human being who's suffering. That's such a simple act. It's not conceptual. You don't need to be educated or understand mindfulness to do that. It's that simple act of being kind. So, and it, there's a lovely, something that's my compass, if you like, in my, in my life is, someone asked a very, a very great Buddhist teacher, how do you know if your practice is effective? And he said, you get a little bit kinder every day. Mm. He didn't say, you know, because you've gained insight or you're enlightened or something. He said, you get a little bit kinder every day. And that's my compass. That's what I try to live by, both in relation to myself and in relation to others. Of course, I, you know, there's times when I'm unkind. Of course there are but I just try to be a little bit kinder. And there's just another thing I think I would like to say for the sake of listeners, because you know maybe it comes across as if I got it all sorted, which I haven't. And you know, one of the things about mindfulness is you learn to have a different relationship with your thoughts, with what's flowing through the mind. So it's not that you don't have difficult thoughts, but you don't believe them in quite the same way or you don't jump on them in quite the same way. And a thought that I have, you know, really quite often is, oh my God, I can't stand this. You know, I still have that thought. You know, when the pain's bad, that's a, that's a kind of mental habit. Oh my God, I can't stand it. And I've just learned to to note that thought. You know, it's just like a little bit of weather coming through the mind. I'll note that thought, but I don't I don't need to believe it. And it's, it's almost like a little trigger for kindness now. I'm having that thought, oh, I need to be kind. You know, what can I do right now to ease my pain a wee bit? But I think, I just want people to know that, that even now after all these years of practice, that's one of my recurring thoughts. <laughs> oh my God, I can't stand it. It's like, oh, there's that thought again. <laughs> and it's in a weird sort of way, that's quite an intelligent thought. You know, like, who would want to stand this? You know, who would want to have this body? It's a difficult place to live. So, oh my God, I can't stand it. That's a kind of understandable thought. But then that's a trigger for, okay, what do I need right now? Maybe maybe I need to go and lie down. Maybe I need to stretch. Maybe I need to reach out to somebody. But I don't need to add to that thought. I don't need to believe that thought as being the truth. It's just a kind of mental event that's arisen in response to, to physical pain. And then, as I've been saying through this interview, I have that thought, I note it. I turn towards my experience and I soften the breath. Because of course, with that thought, there will be some breath holding. You just, just think it now, oh my God, I can't stand it. If I say that to myself now, there's a contracting in the body. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a lovely set of notes that you kind of gave at the end here, emphasizing the importance of kindness, that kind of sense of universal humanity, the approaching of another person, uh, kindness to the self yeah and a acceptance of and acknowledgement that even when you're at the point where you've been dealing with these issues for a long time in a focused way, and you've you know in many ways your your life's work has been around this topic of intervening in pain and managing pain and accepting your own pain and whatever it is. So if anyone's got it kind of all sorted, you know, it's probably somebody like you and yet acknowledging kind of the limitations of that and the common experience that we all have. So I think that it's just a great place to end this particular episode. And Vijay thank you so much for doing this with us.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you two lovely guys. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you. So today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Vidyumala Birch. I'd like to let our listeners know about the Breathworks Foundation, the sister charity for Breathworks. The foundation recognizes that it's often the people who are most in need of this kind of training who are least able to pay for and access it. If you'd like to make a donation to the foundation, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's show. We began today's episode with Vidyumala sharing a bit about her personal journey with chronic pain and the impetus that she had to start the Breathworks Foundation. From there, we went into some of the key practices that Vidyamala uses both in her individual daily life and in her work with others. One of the ones that she highlighted was this idea consistently of bringing breath into the body as a way to relax and open it into the fullness of our experience. The example that she gave of this was clenching a fist and bringing the full focus of our breath into it making that fist want to expand. We can apply that principle to many areas of our pain-related life. One of the topics that we really explored throughout this podcast was the power of conscious awareness and of framing our pain, our discomfort, not as a kind of meta-level thought, but as an ongoing minute-to-minute experience. In the past, your pain is now a memory. In the future, your pain is a concept or an idea or a fear and anxiety. Truly, pain and discomfort exists only in this moment, moment to moment to moment, and that's where we have the most power to intervene. Therefore, we of course want to reduce the first darts of the pain itself, but it could be really helpful to focus on the second darts, which are our reaction to the pain, how we hold it in our mind, and other things like that. Vidyamala closed the episode by really emphasizing the importance of kindness and of using our relationships with other people, those positive supportive relationships as one of the truly best methods to relax our holding of chronic pain, both in the moment and more broadly. So again, the Breathworks Foundation is a wonderful organization. If you have the ability to give, I would really appreciate it. Before we go, I'd like to let you know about Rick's new program, Just One Minute. If you'd like to start making real positive changes to your brain and your life, but you don't have a lot of extra time, then Just One Minute is for you. It features 57 bite-sized practices that give you just one thing to focus on each day to make your life better, such as seeing the good in yourself, finding strength, feeling safer, and taking more breaks. You can watch or listen to them anywhere, and with lifetime access, you can revisit them again and again. For podcast listeners, we're offering a special discount to just one minute. If you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, it will give you 10% off of the purchase price. I was actually there when Rick was recording this program, and I really have to say, I think that it's one of our best offerings. So if you're interested in learning more about Just One Minute, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying these episodes, we would really appreciate it if you would take the moment to rate them through the platform of your choice, leave a comment and subscribe to them. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.